0: Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week, we are joined by Strix Beltron. Hello. i like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs?
1: How did I get involved with tabletop? Um, I got involved with tabletop kind of backwards. I started with um, play-by-post online in the very early days of the internet when that's all you could really accomplish anyway and did narrative collaborative storytelling with other other folks on the internet and we did you know fantasy and sci-fi games and so um it was not too terrible of a stretch to go well i bet i can do this in real life um with my with my fleshy friends um let's give this a shot and that's kind of how it started
0: do you remember the first character you played
1: uh tabletop At all. At all. Yes, I do remember the first character I played. Um, The first character I played was online. Her name was Char. And oh, this is so embarrassing. It was on Neopets. Do you remember Neopets? Yes, I do. (laughs) So back in the day, Neopets had two things really going for it. And when you're like, you know, 12 Um, guilds and then role playing message boards. And so people would form into these little guilds, and then they would go to the message boards and they would role play whatever world they had elected to sign on to. So I had joined a guild called Elemental Controllers, and it was all about humans or fantasy-esque type people who could control the elements. Um, this is way before Avatar was everything, but I was a wind elementalist. And funny story, the leader of that guild, her name was Erica, we ended up becoming friends as adults. Like, she lives really far away, and we don't talk that very often, but we still, like, know and talk to each other, you know, more than a decade later. So, fun stuff.
0: And how about your first tabletop character?
1: Um, my first tabletop character was a little bit of a rougher deal. I think I've told this story before in other venues, but my first tabletop experience, to be honest, almost turned me off tabletop entirely forever. (laughs) Um, It was really not positive. I played with a bunch of guys, and I was the only woman, girl, at the time. And I was, I believe, maybe, it's getting hard to remember, but the only person of color. Um And so I didn't know anything about D&D's rules. I was not, you know, deep into the errata. I just knew, like, elves and thieves and magic and stuff. And this is what I normally do online, so I bet it will be fun. Um. Well, what happened was I got pigeonholed into playing a drow, because I have brown skin. And I was playing a thief. Only I wasn't really playing, because the very first thing that happened is that my character was knocked out, robbed of all of her belongings, stuck in a cell with no way for me actually as the person playing the character to get out, having to be rescued by the rest of the party. Um, So that happened. (laughs) And then I finally got out and I was like, all right, I can join the group and start role-playing now. And I swear to God, 15 minutes later, Damoon, it happened again. (laughs) In the same game. (laughs) So... I came away with that very nonplussed and very confused, and I was young enough that I didn't know how to say no to those things or to say that it wasn't right, and it was very alienating. It was only because I really loved storytelling that I I moved beyond that and and tried again.
0: (laughs) Were the other players and the GM in the same age range?
1: They were a little bit older than me in general, but they were my friends. Like These are people that I had known for at least a couple years which i think was a part of the reason why i was so kind of gob stopped and and unable to respond in the moment when it was happening because i did not get <laughs> what was what was up
0: did you eventually have to fight a literal gatekeeper in the game
1: um well i don't think i ever played another session of dnd with them <laughs> they were my friends but we decided to do other things together But, you know, in my life as both a game designer and a gaming academic and a player, I've I've fought many actual gatekeepers who have told me to their face that I couldn't play in the game or I didn't know what I was doing or I wasn't allowed to do a thing. Now, as an adult, I kind of scoff of those things. You know, I'm very self-possessed and that doesn't threaten me anymore. But uh, it still happens, you know, fairly regularly.
0: With the boom in role-playing games that seems to have happened in the past few years, Do you think there is a best way for new people to approach role playing to avoid situations like yours?
1: So, I don't think the onus is on new people because new people don't know any better. The onus is actually on the community and the people who run these games and invite new people to play to make sure that these folks have good experiences and want to stay a part of the community. We're all nerds. Uh, we all grew up feeling some sort of alienation and so we should understand that very well. For some reason, parts of the community like to double down on that instead of really opening up. You know, I was the most picked on so now I'm gonna be the top of the hierarchy is not really the most healthy way to think about it. There, there are lots of ways to make communities open and inviting to folks. The biggest core of that is empathy and trying to understand people who are not like you, but who still want to participate in the same cool thing that you are participating in.
0: So after that rough start as a player, when did hmm. you decide to make the transition to GM?
1: So it was something more that I fell into rather than I was woke up one day and I was like, man, I think it's time for me to take control of the reins. What actually happened was when I was about 18, I went to a con, and I played in a con LARP of Legends of the Five Rings, um, which is an Asian fantasy-based property that has a, a CCG and a tabletop game and a LARP. And I played the LARP, and it was... um It was mind-blowing. You know, it was uh, a lot like Model UN, which what I had been doing in high school at that time, only cooler because there was magic and shit. So I was very sucked into the world of Legend of the Five Rings, like, immediately. It was very huge gravitational pull. And the con game that I had been at was actually an intro game to establish a running campaign in that city as part of a greater network in the region. And so they were looking for people to lead out of that game. (laughs) So I was young and I was enthusiastic and intelligent and I did good LARPing. It wasn't, you know, terrible. And it did not hurt that, like, I was also attractive at the time as an 18-year-old girl. And they're like, you, you should be part of our team. And I was, like, thrilled. So I ended up doing narrative design for an L5R LARP for for years and then actually taking over and running that network myself because i was very motivated uh at the time by story and by you know all this uh, complex puppet mastery that happens when you're writing a narrative for hundreds of people, and that's really where I got my my chops initially is in uh, DMing. So now I look at tabletop and I just kind of go, <laughs> you know, that's that's not hard at all. Try try doing um, DMing for you know a hundred people at a live event. It's it's nothing.
0: <laughs> in a LARP setting where the boundary between player and character can seem even thinner than usual. Did you ever have problems with people mixing the two worlds?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. In the LARP that I ran, I had an NPC who was basically the bad guy and the governor of the city that people were eventually supposed to overtake and win against. Um, And this character was like super scary super nasty, wore a mask all the time, hunched, hissed, like the whole shebang. And so if new players came like right as game started, and they hadn't met me before the game, when the game was over, they would actually still be (laughs) afraid of me. And they wouldn't want to talk to me. And I realized that this was a huge problem because that's that was not who I was. And this was clearly a case of very strong bleed, uncontrolled and unacknowledged bleed. So that's not good. So I came up with a strategy of being really nice <laughs> before and after game. And so part of that became a ritual of me, uh, baking cookies, um, and then giving them to people after the game as we decompress and we talk and, you know, we have drinks about how it all went and share our battle stories so that people normalize me as my actual self who is a nice person versus this really terrible, scary, um, governor of this city.
0: Did you have to deal with any disputes between players, or was that up to other people in the organization?
1: Uh, I definitely had to deal with disputes between players. Players, in LARPs especially, can get really into their characters, and then their characters' values become their values entirely. There's just no line between player and character. And that's bad because if you end up hurting a character or having drama with a character, suddenly you're hurting or having drama with that person, and that causes huge problems. And so people can get sucked into that and start sort of catfighting, and then they can't stop themselves. So one of my roles was, you know, the peacemaker, but kind of a stern peacemaker where I would basically like separate them, figure out what actually happened figure out what was bleed and what was like true grievance, like someone was just being shitty to another person, not the character, just the person. And then, you know, tell them how it was going to be. They would either need to change their behavior or they would need to do something to address the thing that happened. Or if it was really extreme, like they're out. I believe very strongly in curating strong communities because a community is only as healthy as its members. And if someone really can't get it or can't cope, or is really disruptive in a way that's negative, even though you've tried, you don't let them stay. So sometimes I did not let people stay.
0: Is there an instance where you did not let people stay that sticks in your mind?
1: So there was one person, this was really hard for me, in just a pure leadership capacity, who was part of our team, who was part of our story team and our management team of of the game, which had become very big at that time. And he was a gentleman who I liked very much, who was very creative, and he had some mental health problems. Now, lots of people have mental health problems. I have mental health problems, so I definitely understand, but he was being irresponsible with how he was dealing with those problems. And it was causing huge, huge issues with other people in the game. Like he he screamed at a 10-year-old kid and made the kid cry. And it was because he was not regulating himself with the medications that he needed to. And so we want to be inclusive, right? And so we think that means that we have to accept all kinds of behavior when actually we don't. We can totally understand that This is this person's context and their position, but there's still a a minimum code of contact that kind of whatever circumstances you have going on, you still have to be able to meet. Um, So very sadly, I had to ask this person to leave not only the game, but the management and organization of the game. And he did not take it well um, at first. But then once things stabilized, I think, I hope that uh, the realization dawned that, oh, I was doing more harm than good at that time to myself as well as others. It's appropriate for me to rejoin when some things have changed for me.
0: What about a favorite positive moment from that game?
1: Oh, there's so many positive moments from Legend of the Five Rings. I really wouldn't know where to start. There are so many younger people, especially teenagers, who were in the game, who grew as individuals simply by experiencing kind of new things and new narratives that they had never really even thought of before, becoming more mature. People getting to, you know, do cool things like, you know, beat a giant oni and feel really good about it or have love stories in a, in a safe, insane, contained context where they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Um, my personal favorite is my own story. For my non-NPC character, where basically I had been investigated by what it was basically, you know, CSI of the land, the Rokugan, um, for being a ninja, which is super illegal and, you know, you die if you get caught, except for the investigator and the ninja fell in love, and then they had to decide... If it was more important to maintain their identities as investigator and ninja, or if it was more important to love each other. And so there's this big, grand, dramatic moment where, you know, there's a katana flashing in the air and you're going to stab him or you're going to hug him. And it was great. I loved it.
0: <laughs> Do you have a preference for being a player or a GM at this point?
1: Oh, That's hard to say. I personally enjoy the challenge of playing NPCs in particular in LARPs. Um, And that's because NPCs have directives, and those directives are actually to serve other players, to give other players the chance to be awesome, um, to manipulate them into situations where they get to shine. I think that's harder than just being a regular player and and waving your sword around and killing things. It's more complex, and the payoff is, you know, a little bit altruistic. So I find that to be really fun. But sometimes I enjoy just being a player, and other times I don't want to play at all. I just... Want a GM? So I think it depends largely on mood now.
0: Going back to the people that had been in a situation where they felt bullied and, in turn, took it as permission to bully others. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there is such a stigma in the gaming community when it comes to LARP?
1: Oh well, I think we'll have to zoom out a little bit when we say gaming community. Um, so the gaming community is at this point international, and there are many countries where LARP is cool. The Nordic countries in particular, way down with LARP. They're about 10 years ahead of us in terms of academic study of LARP. People go for fun on the weekends. It's totally a thing. I think what happened in the U.S. is a couple of things in combination. Um, one was the Satanic Panic of the 80s, where all sort of role-playing was you know, demonized as literal Satanism, which is of course ridiculous, but two, it it damaged the reputation of the, uh, of the creative field that this was. And, you know, two, when you're acting something out with your body, you're not going to get it right all the time. It might look awkward sometimes as you're figuring out your authenticity. As any, you know, professional actor will tell you that takes time and talent and skill to sort of build up. Now, you don't have to be a skilled LARPer to LARP and enjoy LARPing and be fine with it, but there are different skill levels. And so I think what the media likes to focus on are folks who look awkward because that's that's easy to pick apart. And that's not fair, right? But the media is unfair. And so especially in regards to boffer LARPs, which is the ones where people hit each other with foam swords, I think it's just from the outside really easy to make fun of because the liminal space within the game, the reality within it that you've set up, that you're sharing with your minds is very different from you know, the telltales and the ephemera that you can only observe from the outside. So when you're an outsider looking in at LARP, you're not actually getting the whole picture. You're only getting, you know, one or two layers of the reality that is actually many, many layers that all of those people are sharing. It's quite magical.
0: Okay, this is kind of a difficult question, but okay, you are an expert. Uh-oh. What is the disconnect or the line, between inspiration and appropriation?
1: Ooh, the appropriation question.
0: And I ask because I've had different GMs say that they really liked a particular bit of mythology or story, but they did not feel right including it in their story because it felt like appropriation.
1: So... That's kind of sad, because I think that that's not appropriation. So I guess I should start with what I think appropriation is. And this is, you know, personal, I'm not speaking for all people. But appropriation is all about context, the context of what you are taking, and when you are taking it, and who are you taking it from, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about taking or borrowing cultural signifiers from other cultures that are not our own. So the important thing to think about is power. So if you are a powerful, dominant majority culture, and you are taking something from a minority culture, and they are can't stop you, it's unwilling, you're taking it against their will, and it's something important to them, then that is appropriation. And that is bad. So an example of this would be um, for instance, Native American headdresses, feathers. Those feathers are earned by warriors. They have huge spiritual significance. And it's not just something you wear on your head because it's fun. Well, in the U.S., especially, we've seen um, Halloween costumes and, you know, you know Burning Man <laughs> costumes where people get basically a war bonnet. That's what these are called and put it on and go, yeah, look at me. Isn't this cool? Which is horrifying if you think about those implications, because the folks you're taking it from have no control over you doing that, and it hurts them. It makes them feel terrible. That's appropriation in my book. Something like, oh man, I think Chinese fans are really beautiful, and I want to incorporate Chinese fans into my LARP character's look, right? Because even though I personally, the player, I'm not Asian, I'm thinking about adding some Asian influences into my character. I think that's perfectly fine. I think cultural sharing happens on a large scale. It can happen in good ways, and it can happen in bad ways, but you can't actually stop it. And so sharing from a culture that has equal status and power as you, you know, you're not really stealing something that they can't take back. But also I think Mixing ideas through cultures is actually very important. Now, you can go back and forth and say, well, minority cultures especially need to protect their culture identity from erosion, which is absolutely true because they're constantly being eroded on all sides. Erosion of language, erosion of clothing, erosion of spiritual beliefs, and they deserve to have those things stay intact. But also, you know, the world is a complex mix of a lot of things and no, no culture is static ever. Um, It's just not possible unless that culture is dead. It's complex. Not everyone is going to get the right answer every time, even someone who's good at it or, quote, an expert like me. But I think that there is room to borrow, but it should never be room to appropriate, as long as you understand what the difference is. I don't know. What do you think, Damoon?
0: Well, being the uh, not very interesting white cis het vanilla guy, Mm -hmm. Uh, my general strategy is to try to avoid it, but it seems like a fine line between paying tribute and stealing, if it were.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be a little tricky, and I think that's okay as long as there's dialogue, right? The best thing that you can do if you're really worried about something like this and you are from a majority culture is talk to your friends from those minority cultures and be like, hey, I'm thinking about this thing. What do you think about this thing? Now, not a single person can speak for an entire culture. Please remember that. And also, if you don't have friends from those cultures, it might be a good moment to self-assess and be like, why is that? Maybe I should go find those friends, right? And Be more inclusive in my own personal life.
0: When a game master is trying to make their game more inclusive by adding a character to be a specific race, can that character be more than just a token character?
1: Yes. So I think, again, this goes back to context. Actually, context matters so much. So this this NPC could be, its, its ethnicity could be used in several different ways, in good ways and bad ways both. If you're building a campaign about the exploration of oppression or about, you know, things that minority cultures experience, that means that very much the, the minority viewpoint of that NPC matters and needs to be emphasized, then emphasize it, right? Dig into it and let them be that person, and really, you know, lay it out. If the goal and the context of your game is to normalize minority folks and be like, yep, they're human, they're just like us, right? There's nothing particularly special about this person other than that they have a lived experience different than yours, then you would treat that NPC as normal, but they would still be living that experience through their own lens. But you'd just be more, I guess, nonchalant about it. You'd be like, yeah, we. This is, this is the reality. We're not going to blink an eyelash at it. Whereas if you're, if you're telling that story because that's the, the direction you want to take the content, then you have to give it a little more focus. Um, does that make sense as an answer?
0: I think so. Again, <laughs> this is one of those things where if I introduced a new character and somebody asked, why did you make them blank? I feel I would have a hard time saying why without seeming like I was just trying to pat myself on the back for inclusiveness.
1: Oh, well, that's a silly question. Why did you make them blank? Anytime anyone asks me that, I say, well, why did you make your character whatever you made your character, right? Why did you make your character an orc? Why did you make your character white? Why did you make your character a woman? And it's because all of these characters exist in this world. And there's no reason not to. I don't know. That's something that I would shrug off and be like, because, you know, these people exist here. Get over it.
0: (laughs) I'd like to talk to you about Bluebeard's Bride.
1: Yeah, let's talk about Bluebeard's Bride.
0: When you were starting to work on the game, at what point did you make the decision to have the GM character in the form of the groundskeeper?
1: Um, so that's really more about nomenclature than anything else. Um, the GM was always a figure and we just didn't know what quite to name the GM. We wanted it to be something thematic um, and aligned with Bluebeard. But I would say we didn't really settle on groundskeeper until we were fairly far in. We knew the function of that and the operation of that figure, the GM. Um, we just didn't know what to quite call it yet. And groundskeeper is more like window dressing language i think than than anything else
0: at what point did you decide that it needed a gm versus being a gm-less more freeform game
1: i think it was pretty early on because of the content of bluebeard's bride which is, you know, very overcharged and sexual and dramatic and traumatic. Um, We felt very strongly that there should be someone captaining the ship. You know, when there's a crew and they're all rowing, that's fine if they can do it in concert. But when there's something as disruptive as as Bluebeard's Bride, they might need help and direction getting through that. So we, we felt like a GM was pretty key.
0: Uh, For all the insiders, I highly recommend going to Hyper RPG's YouTube to watch the three-week session that was played of Bluebeard's Bride. But at the same time, watching a group as veteran as that can also be pretty intimidating. (laughs) You thought that was
1: intimidating,
0: Namoon? How am I supposed to follow up Cheryl?
1: I mean, Cheryl was pretty great. The, the going insane at the end. You should just watch it. You should follow Moon's, uh recommendation. It's free on YouTube to watch all three. And it was fantastic. So go do that.
0: <laughs> what would you say to a guy who feels like they would not be able to participate as a player in Bluebeard's Bride because they cannot grasp feminine horror on a base level?
1: So I actually get this question a lot, so it's totally okay to feel that way. The really short kind of snippy answer is that's okay, feminine horror will grasp you. <laughs> the way that Bluebeard's Bride is constructed is very specific and it's why it took us two years to roll it out. The experience is baked into the mechanics. It's not like a DD and d module where you just read a bunch of text and then you sort of imagine the world that you're in through the text with the rules kind of doing the physics for you. It's completely the opposite the structures of the game, the rules, the dice, the diceless moves all drive you into a specific emotional place. That's the game's job. And so it doesn't matter if you really understand feminine horror or not when you start playing the game as a man or as a woman or really anything in between because the experience, while rooted in what it means to exist as a feminine person. All of us, no matter what gender we are, have feminine aspects to ourselves at some deep gut level. We understand these experience when they're happening to us. And Bluebeard's Bride, there's no way to escape those experiences. That's sort of the point. So as long as you are signed up to going along for the ride, being open and vulnerable and trusting enough in the game to show you what it wants to show you then you're going to have that experience. And most of the time, you know, I hear reports, it's very moving, sometimes especially for guys who have not really had an experience like that before. Um, I hear that a lot. So I don't think it's a barrier. I think it makes dudes nervous because it's the unknown, right? It's it's, it's the dark thing in the box, and I don't know how it's going to bite them. Um, but that's, I think, sort of the thrill of horror but I just hope it doesn't keep people from playing the game because the game totally overrides um, that issue.
0: Would you say there's a wrong way to play Bluebeard's Bride?
1: Yes, there is a wrong way to play Bluebeard's Bride. I would say playing Bluebeard's Bride caustically, um, as sort of a hoo-hoo-ha-horror funhouse kind of thing, is not a good idea. (laughs) One, um, you're not going to get a very fun experience because it's not what it was built for. And two, you're kind of missing the whole point of the content, right? And I think that as actually something that would happen with folks who feel too uncomfortable and nervous to truly, genuinely engage with the content, this would be sort of their their way out of circumventing it. Um, And so that's what we don't want. We don't want people to circumvent the game by sort of trying to play another game loosely like it based off of what they can do to stretch the rules. The game is purposely uncomfortable, and if you're feeling uncomfortable, you're playing the game the right way. But obviously some people will resist this, and they might try to kind of turn it into a haunted house game or, or make it like a jump scare game, and it's not. I mean, sure, there can be jump scares and they're great, but that's not what's at the core of what
0: makes it scary. In the games of it you've played or reports of games that you've received from players do you have a favorite moment that has stood out to you
1: oh that's hard there's been there's been a few let me think for a moment
0: or a moment where you thought now these people are playing the game
1: so yeah I'll, okay i'll share um actually a really early play test that we did so i was running the game for a group of all men so, that was the first time I'd done that. I was nervous because I didn't know how it was going to go. And one of them was John Stravolopoulos, who you've heard me say his name a lot. He's the inventor of the X card. And um, we were really testing kind of the horror level of the game. Because at that time, that early in the development it was actually too, too horrifying. It's too much all the time. It was, it was freaking people out to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. So, we were trying to figure out how to dial it down. So, we're in this playtest with these guys. And, um, I believe John chose to play the virgin or or one of the other light characters like her. Maybe it was the mother. But we're going along and we're going along. And then there's a certain moment where it dawns on people what one of the mechanics does. Because sometimes they don't get it right away. And it's this mechanic that um, when you discover an object, you have to interpret whether it means Bluebeard loves you or he's a terrible, awful murderer and he's going to murder you. Now, we know that he's a terrible, awful murderer and he is going to murder you, but you want to try to convince yourself that maybe he's not. Well, why would you want to do that, right? You'd think, well, I just want to prove it and get out of here because that makes the most logical sense in the game. But the game isn't about logical sense. It's about being in an emotional world where you're trapped. So if you take one of these tokens that prove Bluebeard's a bad guy. You get hurt. You take basically HP point hits. Um, And you can only take so many hits. You have five hit points and then you're dead. And dead means insane. And you get to haunt the rest of the people at the table for the rest of the game. And that's also very scary. But the way to heal yourself is to take one of those objects and say, nope, this shows me that Bluebeard loves me. And this is really insidious because one, the GM never makes players choose what kind of object it is. The players themselves have to choose how to interpret each object. So the agency is on them to say, this is bad, this is good. No one's forcing them. But if they don't say at least one or two of the objects that they find are good and can convince themselves that Bluebeard is good, they hurt so much that they go insane. So then they're caught in a trap. And I remember the moment John realized that they were caught in the trap. It just dawned on his face. The GM, you know, I'm cackling and thinking this is glorious. But for the rest of the game, like, he would only talk to me... Um, through his hands, you know, in front of his his eyes and his mouth because he was so horrified uh, by this idea. And um, John and that group actually helped us dial down the horror a lot to where it works and it's fun. But I just remember that look and how we knew that we were being successful in delivering the mechanics that were going to make this game function how we wanted it to because, because of his realization of that entrapment. Um, it was just it was really glorious to watch. Sorry, John. <laughs>
0: Did the players in that game walk away with a better understanding of feminine horror?
1: Um, I think many of them did. You know, some folks cried. That is actually a pretty common reaction. Um, not in a like bad way, but in a, like, wow, that was so moving. I can't believe I just experienced that. I'm really overwhelmed by emotion kind of crying, which is great. And some of them went, wow. I have never experienced anything like that before. That is utterly horrifying. And so, again, broad strokes generalizing. Some men, at least one or two, who have played this went, that is the most amazing thing I've ever done in a game. It was so heavy. I loved it so much. Uh, My mind is blown I don't think i can ever play it again (laughs) right because they're just so overwhelmed by this whereas the the women and the feminine people that play go wow that was really vindicating that totally nailed it just right i've been in this one such and such experience and it was just like that oh my god i love this game i want to play it again Now, it doesn't go both ways all the time. Some women will be like, yeah, that was fun. And some men will be like, man, I want to play this three more times. Um, But it's something that I've noticed and I thought was very interesting, that it it tends to hit masculine folks a little heavier if they choose to embrace it, because it's new to them.
0: When they say that they don't feel like they can play the game anymore because they had such an emotional response to it, is that a positive or a negative? Do you have a bit of satisfaction from being able to affect somebody so emotionally.
1: Yes. Uh, The whole name of the game for me as a designer is I want people to be able to feel things, novel things that they haven't felt before. So that's always fantastic. It does make me a little sad to think that they might not come back and experience the game in a different way. But if they got what they needed out of it, and they know that, and they know they don't need to come back, I am perfectly happy with that.
0: And do you have any particular tips for GMs who have just picked it up and are getting ready to run their first game?
1: Yeah, so um, it depends on how much bandwidth you have, because I can tell you a lot of things to do. Um, one of them would to be to uh, read the Bloody Chamber, which is what uh, a huge heavy influence for me for making this game. It's a short short story novella um, uh, from the Bluebeard tradition. I would say watching movies like Crimson Peak is a really good idea. Rosemary's Baby is perfect. Definitely get familiar with what feminine horror is. Um, As a GM, you do need to know that. In our source book, we actually break down a whole bunch of feminine horror into categories and then things that you can do with those categories, with the concrete examples to really help out and drive those things. And then also as a GM, it is your responsibility to assess the sort of level of depth that is appropriate for your group. So, like, a group of 18-year-olds can play this game, and they can play it different, very differently from, like, a group of 40-year-olds. Um, the content goes as deep as you can or want to go, but there is such a thing as not appropriately deep for a group. So... Um, keeping that in mind means you have to have good communication and you may want to talk to your players beforehand being like, hey, this is a sexy, really horrifying, interesting, carnal game. What level do you want to be at for this? And then maintaining that level throughout the game is really important. There's the X card, which you can use to help navigate that. And there's other tools as well, which we talk about in the book.
0: If you could run a game of Bluebeard's Bride in any location in the world, where would you want to host it?
1: Oh, well, I'm going to give you a really dramatic answer. So uh, (laughs) if, you know, all bars were off, I would want to host it on the top of one of the Aztec sacrificial pyramids, um, either in Mexico or, or farther down in Central America. I think that would be pretty scary and
0: rad. The Kickstarter was an amazing success. Have you had any difficulties or anxieties with meeting all the expectations of the Kickstarter?
1: Um, not the Kickstarter itself, in particular. Um, we signed with a publisher, Magpie Games, and it's basically their job to take care of the Kickstarter. So that is a huge relief. Um, but I definitely have anxieties about, you know, what happens next for me as a designer. I've written for a lot of games and a lot of different genres video games, tabletop games, narrative design for LARPs, all of that. Um, But this was the first game that was my creation, my game, not someone else's game that I was working on. And for it to have done so well, relatively speaking, in the tabletop world, I feel a little bit of pressure um, about what happens next. Like, do I Do I create another game? What kind of game do I create? What if it's not as successful as Bluebeard's Bride? What if I want to go do something else? Like, actually, I'm just kind of chilling for right now. I am working on a couple of other projects, a Twine project, for instance, um, which I'm excited about, but I don't really like have any plans for my next, you know, giant tabletop opus. I think if I'm inspired and, you know, something comes to me that makes sense and I'm really passionate about, then it will happen. But I'm not suddenly going to, you know, start my own production line that churns out a tabletop per year or something like that.
0: Do you have a particular favorite among the stretch goal settings that were unlocked for Bluebeard's Bride?
1: Hmm, That's hard to say. I think maybe the jail. (laughs) I think so.
0: Are you currently playing or GMing any games?
1: So right now I am playing in a game of Exalted with a bunch of folks you probably know, Tyler and Stephanie and Lauren um, and Claudia um, and um, a few other folks, Cheryl. And it's been pretty fun. I'm in a point in my own gaming trajectory where... Uh, rules are kind of bothersome. I just kind of want to get it down to the role playing. And Exalted is very. I don't know if you've seen the tome that is the third edition, but it's, you know, he, you could murder someone with it. So <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I annoy Tyler, but I, I read as little of the rules as possible and then just try to role play everything, which is not how everyone else at the table does it. You know, there's various styles. Lauren's very, very into the errata and spells and all that stuff, and it's great. So I'm doing that right now. And then. There's a, a game eternally trying to start of Night Witches, Jason Morningstar's uh, game about World War II, Soviet bomber pilot women, which is awesome that I'm trying to get worked out with some of my friends. That's been in the works forever at this point. Uh, and then, you know, I play a lot of um, video games, a
0: lot of video games. Can you go into detail about your exalted character?
1: Oh, yes, I can. Um, so my exalted character, her name is Sophia. And she is a kind of a mad scientist inventor. So she actually has no combat skills. Like she can maybe punch someone, but if there's guns or anything really significant happening, she'll just die. Um, And I did that on purpose because I wanted to experiment with what it was like not being a badass, right? What can you do if you can't fight? So I hack things and I build things and I commune with elementals. I'm a solar. And... I try to think strategically while everyone else is kind of running around trying to kill dreadlords. So the fun that I have in that character is I basically get to create um, new magical shit out of whole cloth. Uh, whatever I want. So it could be anything from like a box that touches a certain person and then you know all of their mitochondria explode or <laughs> things less violent, like um, how to you know make a portal that sustains itself to let elementals go in and out. Just kind of like fun philosophical and intellectual stuff, um which I don't do with every character. So that's Sophia.
0: Was there collaboration between players when building characters?
1: I don't think so. (laughs) We vaguely said, okay, what kind of, you know, boxes are you checking? And are you going to be a fighter type? Or are you going to talk to ghosts or whatever? It was pretty rough. um, But we didn't, like, sit down and create complex backstories with each other or, you know, check, okay, you have this skill, I have that skill kind of thing.
0: So when you showed up and said punching is for other people, were people taken aback?
1: Not really. I think they thought I didn't really mean it. (laughs) Like I would still be able to be proficient in doing some things combat wise. But then I was just not. (laughs) And we quickly figured it out. Um, And so it, it set up some interesting relationship tensions, and role tensions where like some people have to fight and protect and other people have to be protected, and think of clever ways to help the whole group that is not violence. Um, So, that's just something I'm a little interested in focusing on right now as a person, which is why I have this character.
0: When you're imagining games, would you rather create a world or would you rather play in one you've already created?
1: Well, huh. The thing about worlds when you create them is they're living. Right. So even if you go back to a world you created, it moves and changes with you as you move and change. Sometimes I can get very nostalgic and I'll go back and haunt worlds that I created when I was like, you know, 12 or 13. And other times I'm like, I'm totally tired of that. I feel like that that chains me into a certain mindset, into a certain personal archetype, and I need to get out of that. So I'm going to go to this new other world. So I think I prefer to have a balance of Things that I am comfortable with that I've created that kind of speak deeply to me and things that are new um, and I haven't quite figured out yet and may add to my my world-building repertoire in new ways.
0: Any plans on returning to the world of Ryutama that was created on Weekly Affirmations?
1: I would love to do that. <laughs> Ryutama was such a magical, uplifting, wholesome segment of that show I loved it, and I'd love to do it again.
0: When you're preparing to run a game, do you try to keep things in your back pocket? Do you prepare vigorously beforehand, or do you have more of an off-the-cuff style?
1: So way back in the day, I used to prepare vigorously. In my my LARP running days, I had you know pages and pages of word documents and tree maps and relationship maps and contingency plans and backup monsters for every game. It was exhausting. It was like a forty hour work week on top of a regular work job, which is part of why I burned out. And it helped me assert control and make sure the game ran well. And it was probably appropriate for that game. But afterwards, I was like, man, that is too much work. (laughs) So now, what I like to do before a game, depending on the type of game it is, if it's a story or freeform game in particular, they're my favorite kind, I will think of maybe one or two catchy hooks that I can throw out if I need to, if things are going slow or I need to make things interesting. But most of the time, I just read the room. I read who's in the room, how they're feeling, what they want to play, kind of what the message or content of the game is supposed to be. And so how we get there. And then I just kind of do it. So sort of this organic semi-conscious thing where you're, you're in the moment. It's kind of like, you know, improv acting essentially, where you've got your basic tools and you just need to know when to apply them at the right time. And I, I prefer this. It's easier to sustain over time GMing that way for me now.
0: Has there been any particularly helpful tool that you've come across in the past that helped you tell the story you wanted to tell?
1: As a GM, I don't really have a prerogative to tell a specific story. And I actually think that's fairly dangerous because it ends up corralling players and their characters inorganically towards a conclusion that they may not have sought out themselves. So when I am GMing, a story, and there's definitely a narrative, right? My job is not to drive the narrative. My job is to trick or cajole or drag or whatever I need to do to the characters to get them to decide what their story is and where it's going. Um, and sometimes that means getting out of their way, just sitting back and, just you know, having a, a light touch on the reins and making sure they stay on track, and other times it's really challenging them, asking them to be vulnerable, asking them to open up and tell me what they're really wanting to do and why they're wanting to do it, and to think about why they are feeling those things and trusting me and trusting the other players to get to that place. That's sort of my secret GM ninja skill is to create environments of of trust um so that people can really feel comfortable going to places where they want to go but maybe they didn't know how to navigate there before with their characters or with their stories that's what i'm really after when i sit down to tell a story as a gm is to see what it what unfolds for other people and how i can empower that
0: if you were to recommend one of the episodes of weekly affirmations to somebody to get them interested in role-playing, which episode would you recommend they watch?
1: Oh, that's really hard. There's so, I mean, there's so many good ones. That's what I loved about Weekly Affirmations is we never had a bad show. <laughs> they all went really well. Um, so, oh gosh.
0: They went well even when you ended up in a dark <laughs> tunnel to one.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, So, Monster Hearts stands out for a couple of reasons. Monster Hearts is a tabletop game. So, if you think freeform is really freaky, it's easier to do. It's very well distributed and well known. So, it's easy to get. And it's really fun to play. And it's very, very well designed. Avery is one of the best designers of our generation, if not the best, in terms of narrative and story gaming mechanics. She's a genius. And so Monster Hearts is a really solidly designed game, and it would be a great place to start. And watching Monster Hearts is fun too. So um, that might be what I would recommend. Selfishly, I would say also watch Bluebeard's Bride. Um, but horror is not for everyone, I understand. And so the, you know that's only for people that think that they would be interested in that.
0: Have you had a chance to follow up on Monster Hearts 2?
1: Um, I think I backed that Kickstarter. It was a big deal when Avery dropped Monster Hearts 2. Everyone's really excited. I have not gotten a chance to play it yet, but if the opportunity arises, it would be a great second installment to the Monster Hearts game to play Monster Hearts again, but with Monster Hearts 2. Just saying.
0: Except 2 is spelled T-O-O.
1: Yes. (laughs) So, indulge me. What was your favorite weekly affirmations episode or series of episodes?
0: Okay, Ryutama is one of the top. It felt like such a complete game within those three, or a complete story within those three episodes. Like it had a great beginning, a great middle, and a great end wrapped up in a nice bow tie. It was also a nice, fairly low stakes game. And when a game markets itself as Miyazaki meets Oregon Trail and you're listening to the game and can imagine it in the Miyazaki art style, then I think you are succeeding in exactly what the game is trying to accomplish. Bluebeard's Bride is near the top as well. It's such good character work and... Collaborative story building and collaborative emotion building, I would say, that even my wife, who doesn't normally watch role playing or actual plays, got invested in the story and wanted to play it, which is a big step.
1: That's exciting.
0: One, I would also put up there, but that was very difficult for me to watch and I had to take several running starts at would be Our Radios Are Dying.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I love Our Radios Are Dying.
0: I'm not emotionally mature enough to deal with game feels. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I think I started the broadcast about three or four different times before I was able to actually sit through the whole thing.
1: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
0: I have trouble watching people emote in general. Like, even on the, well, what used to be more lighthearted shows like Death from Above, mm-hmm. it can be easier for me to listen to than to watch.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It can get a little overwhelming yeah oh man our radios are dying was so great i mean because it's such a simple game it's two people sitting in chairs for an hour and you're thinking okay how exciting can this be and then as you said man it is high impact stuff that's what i love about freeform
0: i still have trouble i have not actually finished the party of one podcast yet
1: oh that one's rough just (laughs) just so you're aware um Yeah, it was good, but it was rough. Okay, thank you for indulging my questions. I appreciate it.
0: We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the PIVO questionnaire pioneered by Bernal PIVO.
1: Okay, have at it.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word is the word liminal or possibly numinous. Oh, it's tied between liminal and numinous
0: for mouthfeel mouthfeel like it just feels good to say
1: oh no the meaning i'm definitely a meaning person um liminality and and numinosity are two things that are very important to me as a person and as a mythologist and as a gamer actually
0: what is your least favorite word
1: my least favorite word hmm Let me think about that.
0: Starts with a T and ends with a rump.
1: (laughs) That's almost cheating. Um, No, no, it's probably something like... It's not really coming to mind, because I know that there's a word that I just really hate hearing the sound of. I don't like it orally. I can't remember what it is now, though, because I blocked it out of my memory.
0: A hyphenated, well, actually
1: ugh well actually's account they can definitely go die
0: <laughs> what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally
1: so all of those are interconnected for me creatively spiritually and emotionally i think there's this feeling of complexity and mystery and the unknown That's wrapped into narrative, wrapped into mythology and storytelling, where, you know, as a pantheist, I am a pantheist, we are the universe discovering itself. We are, we are the things bringing consciousness to, to this world. And it is through us that everything knows that it exists, uh, you know. So when we are storytelling, we are, we are inventing the universe. We are creating life. And it's beautiful. And, you know, I was I was listening to a documentary, I think, last night. It was Encounters at the End of the World with uh, Werner Herzog, who is one of my favorite documentarians. But there was someone in the documentary who was mentioning when he fell in love with the world. And I was like, oh, I remember when I fell in love with the world. Um, and it's when I realized that you know, we are it, that the complexity and the emotion and the things that we feel and the things that we do with and among ourselves is really cool. And the world is really cool. And it has, you know, a lot of terrible things in it and a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow. But it's those things combined with the glorious and the numinous things that make it meaningful. And so, Anytime I feel that underlying meaning bubbling up from the surface, from the unconscious or from a story or from a myth, I get very happy because then, you know, I'm still in love with the world.
0: Can you recall the last time you had that feeling?
1: Let me think about that. Cause I kind of have it in little like glimpses all the time. I think it may have been yesterday where I was contemplating my relationships and you know my failures as a person and how I could always be better and how I could treat people better and you know why does anyone ever put up with me you know the things that all humans think um and I was sitting on my porch looking at the stars and I was like but wait like everyone else feels that way everyone else is trying their best this is messy and it's complex and there isn't a good or a right answer you're never gonna feel 100% like you're doing it right um no one is and that's okay. That is the world. And that's how it is. And that is, that's what makes it magic. So uh, obviously I was feeling very <laughs> philosophical yesterday. Thanks, Werner Herzog. Uh, but it's, you know, it's because we are a mess and it's, it can't be cleaned up. It's just how it is.
0: What turns you off?
1: What turns me off? Um, myopia? Misogyny? um egoism um things that show that people are just not interested or curious or care about the world around them or the people around them
0: what is your favorite curse word to hear from your players
1: I prefer when they just moan inconsolably because they're so terrified about what's about to happen that they can't properly vocalize it. (laughs) It's more of the, uh, why, that I really appreciate. Do
0: you recall the last time you got that reaction?
1: Oh, it was the last time that I ran Bluebeard's Bride. That was over at um, MAGFest on the East Coast a few months ago. And, um, I was about to do something, well, I should free it. I was about to let a player do something very terrible to themselves. And there was, there was the moaning and I was like, all right, this is great. This is going exactly how it should.
0: <laughs> I think the answer to that question is always going to be the last time I ran Bluebeard's Bride. In a probably,
1: <laughs> probably.
0: <laughs> what sound or noise do you love?
1: I love thunderstorms. I love thunderstorms.
0: What sound or noise do you hate?
1: I really hate the sound of breaking bones. It's a very distinct sound. <laughs> do not like.
0: <laughs> what game system would you like to attempt?
1: I would love to try out the new Rifts um, Savage Worlds rule set adaptation. I love Rifts as a world. It's fantastic and awesome and gonzo. And the Rifts rules, as we all know, are complete and utter unplayable garbage (laughs) that are, you know, impossible to deal with. Uh, And so if Savage World has done an adaption that stays true to the sort of nature of Rifts, but is fun to play and actually works, I, I might be interested in giving that a shot.
0: What game system would you not like to attempt
1: Oh man, I think almost anything OSR. So OSR's um old school renaissance. They're indie games kind of like story games, only they're much more AD&D-esque with like heavy metal elements, you know. They're they're like classic 70s throwbacks and they're much more based on like meritocracy and rolling and physics and The worlds sound interesting. I just don't think I'd want to deal with those rule sets.
0: When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players?
1: I like to hear, wow, that was so moving. I need to think about this. Let's let's talk about what happened. Why am I feeling this emotion?
0: (laughs) If you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be?
1: Oh, that is a weird question. Gosh, there's so many people. Oh, man. This is hard. Why are you asking me hard questions to Moon? Hmm. I feel like I would want to watch a female Egyptian pharaoh sneeze. Because, you know, they had to put their beards on with wax, because all pharaohs have beards, but not all pharaohs were were men. And I just wonder, you know, how she would deal with sneezing with a wax beard. And also, I just want to really know what an Egyptian female pharaoh looks like in person. So I think that would be my answer today.
0: Is there anywhere the insiders can follow you or read up on your work?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I am very active on Twitter. I'm the Strix, the underscore S T R I X. Um I also have a website that keeps track of all of my various gaming projects because there are very many of them. Um and that's Strixworks within E.com. So S-T-R-I-X-W-E-R-K-S. Um I'm around at various conventions, I give panels and lectures, I write papers, um I'm on hyper RPG. So I'm around, I'm pretty easy to find, and I'm happy to interact. So say hi.
0: Thanks for joining us in the studio today.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Damoon. I know we've been trying to to get this together for a while. I'm really happy that it worked out today. Thanks so much for your time and your very interesting questions. I hope um, you had fun uh, talking to me this last hour.
0: Head over to YouTube to check out the past broadcasts of Weekly Affirmation. In case you haven't gotten tired of hearing me say it, I highly recommend Ryutama and Bluebeard's Bride. While at YouTube, you can also check out the Audio Entropy channel. Lately, Luke has been uploading play sessions of Pizza Party, which we talked about in his episode of Inside the Master Studio. Inside the Master Studio is an Audio Entropy original. Head to AudioEntropy.com to listen to more podcasts like Transmission Radio. Molly, Jules, and Ashley give amateur anecdotal advice from three trans girls. They talk about various parts about being trans, from dealing with societal expectations to hair tips. There's also plenty of goofs to make sure it doesn't get too serious. Audioentropy also just recently launched The Book of Medora a bi-weekly exploration of how the Zelda mythology was constructed game by game from its simple beginnings to the labyrinth that is today. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast, or you can send an email to us inside the masters studio at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send a message either way. Stick around after the outro music or a special announcement from friend of the show Jeff Stormer about the Philly Podcast Festival. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, you're a shining, joyful anteater.
1: Jeff Stormer here from the Party of One podcast, the RPG actual play podcast focused on two-player role-playing games. You might remember it from the time that we played a game with Matt from Teenagers with Attitude, or Molly from Totally Reprise, or Mitchell from All Along the Watchtower, or De Moon Rules from Inside the Master Studio. We played a lot of games. That's not really the point. Anyway, moving on, here's the deal. Party of One is doing a live show, July 15th, at Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at high noon, as part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. It's going to be great. We're playing a superhero-themed game. It's going to be so much fun. And if you're in the area, I would love it if you could make it out. And if you're not in the area, or you can't make it out, you should check out the show on SoundCloud and listen to the live episode when it drops. Either way, thank you for your time, and party on.